Hey everyone, this is Chris Sands and welcome to TechGC's new podcast, Good Counsel, where we explore the most important legal issues affecting today's technology companies. If you're not familiar with TechGC, definitely check us out at techgc.co and you can see how our professional community drives innovation, education, and mentorship in the tech and legal industry. Today's episode is part one of our blockchain series. The series will feature a variety of experts with the goal of better understanding the blockchain movement, what it means for tech, and the important legal considerations around it. My guest for this episode is Marvin Amori. Marvin heads legal and public policy for Protocol Labs, a company whose projects include a cryptocurrency token Filecoin and a platform for SEC-compliant token sales CoinList. Protocol Labs has raised over $200 million from VC firms including Sequoia Capital, Andreessen Horowitz, and Union Square Ventures. Marvin is also a member and officer of the industry's leading trade association, the Blockchain Association, working with members such as Coinbase, Circle, DCG, and Zcash. While Marvin is an operating legal professional, we spend most of the conversation speaking on blockchain as Web 3.0, decentralized identity, and the process for blockchain adoption. With that said, let's jump into my convo with Marvin Amori. Marvin, thanks so much for taking the time. I really want to pick your brain on blockchain more broadly and not so much on the cryptocurrency market, but in the areas of blockchain that are often ignored or underappreciated, like decentralized identity, like the blockchain movement as Web 3.0. Why don't you walk us through the history and evolution of the web and where blockchain fits into it? So first, in terms of the terms people use, you know, people talk about web one, I think is kind of AOL, news groups, people posting and broadcasting on the internet. They talk about web 2.0 more as a two-way communication and a lot of user-generated content. So web 2.0 is uploading videos on YouTube and messages on Facebook and tweets on Twitter, kind of moving from a world where there were newspapers and broadcasters and people who created and disseminated content, Web 1, the world in Web 2, where all of us can communicate with one another and create content and user-generated content took over the web. If you remember, Time Magazine named, quote, you, the person of the year in the mid-2000s. That was sort of Web 2. Thanks to YouTube and Twitter, like, wow, you've been empowered. And it's kind of interesting. You don't even remember life before that. And it's about us, the web today is just, of course, it's primarily content generated by other people. We don't even think of it as user-generated content. We think of it as us communicating with one another. Now, Web3 is a term used to describe where the web is going if blockchains and encryption become and sort of distributed and decentralized computing become the norm. And the move from Web2 to Web3, the move is essentially the same way that Web1 to Web2 went from broadcasters like NBC.com to users sharing videos on YouTube. The move from Web 2 to Web 3 is more the movement from Facebook and Google and Amazon, from platforms like that to protocols and internet tools that perform the same function. So instead of needing Facebook login to log in all over the web and on applications, because that's useful for small app makers to kind of outsource authentication and, and passwords to Facebook login. Instead of relying on Facebook login and all the data on Facebook, you could maybe rely on blockchain, which is pretty much a spreadsheet or a ledger or a database that you can trust without anyone owning it and controlling it. So it's kind of database that you can have mutual trust around without Facebook or any one company owning the database and encryption. And to that privacy where fully encrypted authentication details plus the disappearance 
of the platform like Facebook for holding the data. So if you move to a world where there's just the equivalent of TCPIP or HTTP, one of these kind of protocols or open source tools that people can use that replace existing companies, you can move, when people believe in this movement, you can move towards essentially embedding a lot of the key functions that are being taken care of by companies just into the technology itself. And when people talk about why Web 1 and Web 2 focused so heavily on advertising. They say it's partly because money and payments was not native to the internet. You hear Stripe, it's a great payments company, making this argument. I've heard Mark Andreessen, the great venture capitalist and inventor of Netscape, make this argument that payments was very expensive. And so you couldn't easily build business models around payments or not as cheaply as, you know, you can't do micropayments. It's pretty expensive to send just a few cents here and there. And so the web built more naturally around advertising. And if you build businesses around advertising, you have to build your business around gathering as much data as possible about people so that you can make money targeting them based on their interests. And you actually need a ton of information to make a lot of money in advertising. This is why Facebook and Google dominate how much money is spent on advertising online. And so with the current structure of the internet as it stands, there are a few tech giants who dominate advertising and are required to collect as much personal information as possible. Does that mean that decentralized identity where no platform owns your data, that your data is stored uh, across protocols and, and by no centralized authority, is that the answer to the privacy issues that we're seeing? Decentralized identity could be a solution to some of the privacy nightmares we've seen. One, it removes the central point of failure when it comes to hacking and leaking and employee failure at a company like Facebook or banks and retailers who have a lot of our information stored in their databases. And then two, it also should give people more control over how they let other people access that information and who gets access to it. Right now, we have no idea who's buying and selling our data. It's very cheap to buy people's stolen credit card numbers on the dark web. It's a very legal marketplace for buying almost all of our data. You know, if you have someone's IP address, you can buy their home address and their name, things like that. So a very robust data brokerage market out there, which governments have been trying to shut down more recently. Yeah, I think decentralized identity could help solve some of the problems. But even though there are a lot of privacy problems, people still use the platforms because they're so efficient and uh, we're used to them so much. Do you think it's something that has to be imposed by government through areas like privacy for this adoption to actually take place? So I don't think it has to be imposed by government. What we probably need is for these tools to be as convenient or more convenient or even 10 times more convenient than the current solution for people to move over. And maybe they have to be 10 times more convenient for people who build applications and the consumer doesn't even see or notice. Right? So Think about when the internet moved from being on the application providers' servers in their offices to being moved to the cloud. That wasn't a mass consumer movement. It just made more sense to move data into the cloud. Users, when our applications moved to the cloud, we got used to it. We liked to Dropbox because it allowed us to have the same information on our phone and our computer seamlessly. We got used to our books being on the Kindle server where it could be deleted and updated, etc., and not on our own computers. You know, at the time, people were writing articles about it. Can you imagine if Amazon deleted your books 
Wouldn't that be awful? And now people have gotten used to it. I remember there were people writing articles about who will inherit your iTunes collection. You own thousands of songs you get a lot of money for. Who will inherit it? And then we all moved to Spotify. And it became a moot question. No one realized that they wanted to move to Spotify until it became more convenient, cheaper, better. And you know, throughout the history of the internet, no one realized they wanted a way to book a spare bedroom in a stranger's house until Airbnb. In fact, until Airbnb was three years old, no one realized that. You know, it's the story of the internet. If you show people something that delights them and that works better and probably much better than the existing solution, they will move to it. I think that's what the folks working in blockchain, when they say this is early days for blockchain, this is early days for the decentralized web, what they mean is it's more like the internet in 1991 than like the internet today in terms of some of the tools that we're building. But you're right. If it's not convenient and easy, people will sacrifice where their information is on a day-to-day basis for convenience and ease of use. And so to wrap up, how long of a timeline are we talking until there's really mainstream adoption of blockchain? Uh, How does it all come together? How typically do these big internet movements happen? So usually change happens slowly and then quickly. And so my guess is that for blockchain-based software to improve the internet and improve our privacy and change how the data moves on the internet, I see that happening on a 10-year scale. But there's going to be a year in that next 10 years, if this works, where it just all works, I think. Right? It's going to be like the 1995 of the internet for blockchain. If you remember 1995, that's when AOL took off and everything kind of came together. Because a lot of these tools are built on one another and interdependent on one another. Right? Some of them can't take off until others are built. I think there'll be a moment where there will be adoption and it'll become enough people are familiar with the tools, know how to use them, know their benefits, and enough of the infrastructure we build for the interdependent tools to work well. And I could be wrong. If it succeeds, there's huge potential. And that is the story of technological innovation. That's the story of the internet, is that, hey, most of the things we've tried have not worked. Even most of the things that have been financed have not worked, right? 90% of venture-backed companies fail. 90% of crypto projects will fail by definition. But even if every one of them was completely honest and legitimate and had a good team, 90% of them would fail. The 10% that succeed could be transformative. And I think in the earlier days, the things that are most likely to succeed will be payments. Things like Bitcoin, things like Zcash, which is sort of very much like electronic cash in terms of its privacy features. I think if Libra launches, there'll be a lot of adoption around Facebook, uh, Facebook's Libra project. So I think payments will be first. And then I think some of the other applications that people are building to improve the internet will come after that. And I think decentralized identity won't be too far after payments in timeline. This has been part one of the blockchain series. Stay tuned for part two by subscribing to Good Counsel through your favorite podcast app. And I also recommend following TechGC on LinkedIn or Twitter as it's a way to be right at the intersection of law and technology and a prime source for news, jobs, insights, and much more. Once again, I'm Chris Sands, and thanks for tuning in.